and welcome to Dream Life Best Fit Role with me, Nikki Smith. I'm a psychologist and a career and business coach. I believe everybody can love their work and I help people to use their natural strengths to transform their work life and love their job. These podcast episodes shine a light on individuals who have created their Dream Life Best Fit Role or business. I focus on how they've played to their natural strengths those activities that energize and inspire them and how they've conducted mini experiments to take the fear out of change and generate momentum. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to welcome Katie Ridsdale today to Dream Life Best Fit Role podcast. Now Katie has a background as a lawyer and working in publishing and we've met recently and started working together and her experience of the early mini experiments and early dream lives module have just been stunning. And I really wanted to share her experience of it with you all. So welcome, Katie. Thanks, Nikki. So first up, I'd love for you to share a bit about yourself and your career pathway till now. Sure. So I am married to a very lovely man called Angus and we have two boys, the older one's seven and the younger one's almost five. And I guess I'm searching for my next career somehow, something that's sort of sustaining kind of intellectually and it, that is something that gets me out of the house and also something that fits with, I guess, where I'm at in this period of, in my life which is I do also want to be present career-wise but also present at, at home. So in terms of career pathway to this point, as you mentioned, Nikki, I, well, I don't know about a, a background in law, but, yes, I have a law degree and feel like I practised for about five minutes before realising that it wasn't the right place for me. I sort of had this sense that I was working with people at the worst part of their lives and I kind of wanted to be at the other end and somehow at the ideas end and I I don't know, I just felt like I I didn't really feel like I was going to be a good lawyer. So Can we stop uh, for a second because I just yeah. love that insight and you've shared this with me before and it's one of my favorite insights of yours which is that you didn't want to work at the tough end of people's lives or the tough spots in people's lives you wanted to be at the ideas generating at the kind of creative or generating part of people's lives is that right yeah that's right I don't know whether there was sort of an insecurity in me at that stage that just said I can't cope with this and I don't know if there was sort of negative self-talk bound up in that but I think given that my next move was very much into that ideas generating helping authors to bind up their ideas and then send new textbooks out into the world I feel like I have to go back to that point it was an insight at that time and I should own that for what it is absolutely because oftentimes people will work for many more years before making that kind of change based on that insight. So how did you come across the publishing role? I basically resigned from my role in the in the law firm and I really felt like I was searching for searching for something else, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do beyond a vague sense of I knew I was sort of directing myself towards towards law somehow, but that didn't feel right and I knew I liked words and ideas in a general sense and sort of thought, oh, publishing sounds, maybe I could do something in that without 
having really any idea of the various myriad roles that exist in publishing. And I, I ended up applying for a sales rep position at Oxford University Press. And I think it was clear to me and to the people interviewing me at the time that that was not my heartland. But I'd also heard in publishing circles and well, there was this sense that you had to get in on the ground level and you sort of had to work your way up in publishing. Anyway, I, it so happened that Oxford or OUP were looking for a law publisher at that exact time and so my details were passed on from the people who interviewed me for that initial role and and basically I, I got a job as a commissioning editor for law which on its face involved basically building a law textbook list for an Australian law textbook list so basically making textbooks for law students and I really felt at that time I could not believe my luck that this huge gamble had been taken on me I had a law back Background, but I had no publishing experience. But I guess Oxford needed someone with a with some understanding of law, and I wasn't that far out of uni, so I'd recently been a law student. So I got the job on that strength, and it, I felt pretty amazing at that time. And can you explain a bit more about what the role entailed? Because I think it's a fascinating job. Yeah, of course. So I guess what I think I loved. For, for most of the, so this has been my most recent experience and I was at Oxford for 15 years. So for 10 of those 15 years, I was the law publisher and I kind of worked my way up in, in terms of seniority. And it sort of had a number of different aspects, but the main, I guess, essence of the job was to commission new textbooks. So that basically meant I came to grips with the market. So my market was, I guess, law students studying an undergraduate or postgraduate degree in law. So knowing what subjects they were studying, what books already existed in that market and where I guess, where the future was going in terms of, I guess, how law subjects were being taught or whether there were changes in the law. And I was responsible for sort of understanding that whole picture and then really trying to identify who were the best people, best academics, and in some cases, practitioners to to write textbooks for me or for Oxford. And so I took my market knowledge and took my knowledge of the best and brightest and the kind of most senior academics and then the rising stars and I made contact with them, in most cases cold, either by email or in person in meetings. And I, I guess I tried to navigate my way through that to sort of, I guess, convince them that they were the right people to write the books or convince them that their idea for a book wasn't kind of commercially viable but if they if we work together then we could come up with them writing this incredible textbook that would really serve the market and I would help guide them through that writing process which sometimes was sort of from the very starting point right through to the publication of one of these books that could be three or four or five years so it was a really long kind of gestation period. My role was as the face of Oxford I guess I was the person who made that initial foray in some cases it was a sole author relationship in other cases I put people together so they worked in teams to write and then I saw them through that writing process which I 
haven't haven't written a book myself, but it can be really isolating and quite lonely process and there's lots of self-doubt and questioning even from very senior academics. And so I would try and, I guess, mentor and influence that relationship so to ensure that the manuscript that they were producing was the manuscript that we wanted, that Oxford wanted, and that it did continue to fit the market. And so I would manage that personal relationship as well as managing, I guess, the commercial conditions into which that ultimately that textbook would would go in and they're not I guess responsible for managing multiple projects all at all at once so not just one book coming through but multiple books coming through and then what is the balance of the overall list of textbooks and which direction do we go in and what strategic decisions do we make and so it was a very varied role and there was not a lot of I mean there were some aspects that were kind of procedural but I loved the autonomy that I had and the decision making capability I was sort of entrusted with in this role and yeah I got to go around Australia and visit different campuses and I got to drive around meet lots of different people and it served lots of different things that I liked. Yeah it sounds just such an interesting role because not only did do you get to explore ideas and words which you nominated earlier on in our interview being partly what you're passionate about but it's yeah. relationship building strategic thinking and also there's the business acumen side of liaising with the publishing and marketing teams within Oxford University Press to get things through and influencing different people in different teams as well so such a broad skill set and yeah as I said I was I was at Oxford for 15 years and so 10 of those years were spent doing the law publishing which was sort of I guess the reason I was hired initially with that law background but then I I had two periods of maternity leave within that time and then when I came back from maternity leave I was given responsibility for the teacher education list so I moved from law to teacher ed and that was to recognize the fact that when I was the law publisher it was in a growth phase so I was sort of filling market gaps whereas the teacher education list was a much more mature list the books already existed and it was a matter of much more strategic thinking around well how do we develop the books that we've got and how do we look at breadth and depth across that list but I guess from a personal point of view what it gave me was by that stage I was very comfortable in a in a publishing role or in a commissioning role but it gave me I guess a new discipline area I really loved working with the teacher educators they were I guess a different type of academic to to law academics because most of them were first and foremost teachers and I really I loved the engagement with those authors around this idea of how do we educate future teachers to meet the needs of of students mostly primary students but I then grew the early childhood list and I felt like at that at that time that my home life was mirroring to a point my professional life because I had very young children in in various stages of early childhood settings and there I was engaging in conversations around that and it was it was really exciting that's brilliant absolutely brilliant So 15 years on, something happened. Tell us about that. Yeah, when I was reflecting on this, I definitely spent some years before I made the decision to leave Oxford contemplating it. 15 years in the one workplace is is a long time and I feel like I did have a little bit of this, oh, you're not in the generation that stays in a workplace for 25 years and doesn't move and if you don't move, 
now, I guess I did feel this sort of right, slight rising fear of you might never leave. And I think I really did feel this sense of being a product of my history a little bit. And here I was having made this, in inverted commas, brave decision to leave law and without knowing what the next stage was. And I suddenly felt like this is the stage that I need to do that again. And I, it certainly didn't feel brave at the time. And I guess I, I ruminated about it for a long time because on paper, there were and and not just on paper but on experience there were lots of reasons lots of positive reasons to stay so I liked my colleagues I had this great satisfaction of combining lots of different things the days were never dull I liked so many of my authors I found real reward and satisfaction in in seeing these incredible books published and the work that had gone into them and the, the fact that here was an end result but I really started at I guess when I did resign in the middle of May of 2017, I just began to feel really quite compromised and stressed and unbalanced with work and life. It had already been probably for the preceding 12 to 18 months when I had been working and admittedly I was working part-time and so I guess that's where on paper I would say, you know, working three days, I had two days at home. It sort of looks like the perfect scenario but even still, I just, I felt like I was always late. I was running on empty. I kind of lost a lot of my passion. I I used to feel at Oxford that I was really mission aligned and I was a champion of the business. And I started to lose that for a variety of reasons. Publishing's in a state of flux. It has been for a long time. It felt like we were all working harder, being asked to work smarter with fewer resources. And we were all working at full capacity. And I felt like I was really missing out at home and I needed to make a change. So I felt like coming up, I had one child at school in grade one and I had my littlest one in four-year-old kinder and it felt suddenly I felt almost like slam you down sort of feeling of this is this is his last year before he goes to school and I want to be there and also knowing that he was going we were going to transition my older son from the school he was at to another school that felt like a really huge thing for him and therefore us as a family and I just had this sense that I wanted to be around and so they were the forces that kind of all combined to a point that I really felt like I couldn't stay any longer. Wow you described that so beautifully and thank you for sharing so honestly because I think it's really important for us to hear more stories. I hear this most weeks coaching people but I think we need to make it more public even a part-time role that looks good on paper, <laughs> that has a lot of appealing aspects to it, may still not be the best fit, may yeah. not be the best fit in terms of yourself or your family or whatever it is because some workplaces are good at acknowledging the whole of us and the whole of our lives, but some workplaces aren't. But I think it's just so refreshing to hear that said, that it was a part-time role, but as you said, the landscape changed and you were being asked to do things with yeah, fewer resources and potentially push to full capacity. I'd imagine that it does change the landscape and the culture a little bit. Absolutely. And I felt, well, I don't know my own experience of that. And I think even just talking to others in different situations, but, you know, sort of my natural inclination was why am I not coping in this? I had been coping and other people cope with full-time work and, and here I am with the on paper, perfect scenario, but I'm I'm really unhappy and I, and I, I thought I can't sustain this any longer and I and I 
I really it reached a point, as I said, where I'd been thinking and, and really quite openly talking to my closest people around the need to leave. But I guess if I know myself well enough to know that sometimes those decisions, I kind of need to verbalize it and exist in, in the, the struggle of it for a while. And then I really, it became just, I need to resign right kind of right now. And I knew that I didn't have a safety net of another job. And I, I had thought long and hard about it, but then it reached a critical point and I sort of thought it was going to be easier than it <laughs> than it was, which I, I guess we will come to in terms of what it looked like once I had actually made this quite radical decision. I would love to explore that. I think what you experienced is really common. People think about leaving for a long time and often it needs to get to quite a painful point to actually leave. And anyone out there thinking of resigning, come and talk to someone like me before it gets to that really painful point if you can. But it's really universal and common. That's often how it happens. Mm. But then I'm interested in exploring what were your expectations after resigning and what actually happened? Just one thing I was just thinking about was I really did have this strong sense that if I if I stayed any longer, I wouldn't leave well. <laughs> and yes. I don't I don't know whether other people might might hear this and think that this is useful to them. But I, after such a long time and a really happy time for most of those 15 years, it was really important to me to leave on my own terms and to not get to a point where I was so disenfranchised or glum about the future or bogged down in office politics or change in culture or all of that, that I owned it enough to say, okay, this is a decision that, that I made. And I guess that leads on into my what started as a really positive mantra when I left but that I found actually ended up being a bit of a weight was this idea that I chose this and it was a very conscious decision and I felt like I was choosing it for the right reasons and when I left I think I had this sense that you've done the work that you needed to do and you are entitled to this break and you have a few milestones to cope with. You know, you do want to transition your children to a new school and I felt like there were things that I wanted to do that I didn't feel I had time to do when I was working and also I did have this genuine sense of I've got some head work to do. Like I I need to get out of Oxford. I've been there too long it's time for a change and also potentially it's time for a change like an industry change I want something completely new and so I guess Nikki before meeting you I, I really did try and own that decision I was really honest about it with people I felt like I wanted a break and I really wanted to be present for my boys and in terms of reflecting on that what I found and I guess this idea that this is time for me to smell roses like I really just don't want to be bounded up in work and I want to cook and enjoy my own company and I'm entitled to that and all of that sort of stuff what I found was I just was really miserable, really miserable. And and I, I guess in reflecting on it, I've been thinking, well, what does being present for my boys actually look like? It didn't give me a framework. It just 
gave me a whole lot of time that I then found myself anxious and miserable and really floundering. Here I did have the time, but I was putting the load of washing on and cooking meals and feeling domestically enslaved and feeling anxious that I wasn't bringing money in and seeing the impact on my husband who went into overdrive around the practical side of things in terms of how we're going to make up the shortfall in salary. But I felt like, and this is probably not giving him credit, but I really felt like, oh, I'm not being emotionally supported here. And maybe that's because I was so clear that this is what I needed to do, but I'm really struggling. And I felt like our communication fell away a bit and I wasn't smelling the roses. And it was a, and I say was, because I guess I now working with you, Nikki, I really have had many light bulb moments and I don't feel I'm in that stage anymore, even though that was six weeks ago or something, like really freshly recent. So I remember how tough that was and how, what an emotional roller coaster it was. I felt I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared for the depths really and how quickly my professional identity, it felt like it fell away the day after I resigned. <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Wow, that's so big, isn't it? Yeah. And and I I do want to explore this with you, but I also feel like we need to perhaps summarise the experience at Oxford University Press because it sounds like you had a magnificent time then and we've talked a bit about you needing to leave and change industries and and going there but there's some part of me that feels like we have to say that if you're considering working at Oxford University Press it's a great place to be. (laughs) Yeah yeah. and and that's there's no doubt about that and I've actually ahead of having made the decision to resign if we're going back into this and then because I had this 15 year spread of all of these relationships and authors who I'd seen from developing the first edition of a textbook and in some cases I'd seen them through three or four editions of books I had these really rounded deep professional relationships but also personal relationships what I did was when I'd made the decision to resign I had all of my law authors who I hadn't worked with for five years in many cases and I had my more recent relationships with the teacher ed academics I basically emailed them or I spoke to them on the phone and just sort of said goodbye that was very empowering for me kind of as a person and as a publisher as well and it was an incredible reminder of the richness of the role that I had there and the really positive experience I had working there and so that did give me confidence although I just said that it all fell away the day after which is quite full-on but that gave me the confidence that I had left well and I'd left on my own terms and that what a privilege it had been to have had the experience there that I had for that long. That's beautiful to hear so are you saying the the response from your phone calls and emails was that positive and overwhelming was it? It was amazing. <laughs> and I, as I said, I think earlier, I was pretty honest with people about the reasons I was leaving. And I had very senior women professors saying, I don't think many of them used the word regret, but talked about the struggle that they'd had around when they'd had young families and they'd made the decision for whatever reason to sort of prioritise their careers or existed in that real struggle when their children were young. People shared a whole lot with me. I think think because I was quite honest about saying I need some time out and there was real respect for that decision and both from those authors and also from my own colleagues and my managers at Oxford. So that felt like a really important process to go through. I'm really glad I had that. 
and how how fantastic that you could be honest and then the depth of response that you got back from communicating that way yeah when you say that you felt like your confidence actually your personal work identity dropped the day after you resigned you talked about running on empty do you think that was part of it do you think you were exhausted yeah I do I think I was stressed and pushed to the absolute limit and I suspect some of that was pushed to my own like I was pushing myself to my limit but I kind of felt like I couldn't work out a way to manage any differently within the environment I was in so I guess on its face I probably could have said well I want to drop back to I don't know two days or could I could I reconfigure my life to make it look more manageable but I certainly was running on empty and I think because because of the sort of environment in in publishing and the transition and the constant change, I really feel like I'd, my confidence had taken a hit a little bit already and, and it wasn't just unique to me. I feel like my colleagues, we were all feeling this sense of, hang on a minute, what's changed? We've all, we're all still working really hard and potentially harder than we ever have, but we're not seeing those rewards. And then I think I took that deeply into myself and thought, maybe I'm just not a good, you know, not a good publisher or something's changed and it must be me. And I do wonder if that contributed to this feeling of it falling away. And I really felt like a teenager again. I felt like, oh, this is what I felt like when I was doing exams at school. And I was always the one that came out out of the exams and said, no, I failed. And then, of course, I hadn't failed. I'd done really well. But it sort of fed back into all of those, the negative kind of self-talk became quite overwhelming right at the end of working. And then that has dominated the space that I was, the negative space that I was in before meeting Nikki. I think it's a really fantastic point to make and I might just add a little bit to it which is we talk about dream life best fit role and part of that is this best fit role and I think sometimes we give ourselves a hard time if we're not feeling like our best in an environment. So for example it sounds like you have very high expectations on yourself and what you can achieve but it also sounds like you need to feel a sense of reward and whether that's in terms of positive encouragement, remuneration or recognition, you know, there are many different ways that we can feel rewarded, but it's important for us to recognize what that is that we need and to see if we can create that in a workplace. And if we can't, then it's also important to believe that it can exist in another workplace. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So Katie, you've talked about wanting to smell the roses but being exhausted after resigning. So what was that like, that six-month period? It was really awful. And I really feel like I was both existing in the moment to moment, but also sort of, I think I would describe it as I was just in this constant state of disappointment in myself, which is an awful, negative, sad place to be. And I think it stemmed from this idea that I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't live up to my own dream of what this time could be like. I don't know if that makes sense, but this, yes, I think it, it started with this idea that, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm quite a thoughtful person and I had done what I felt like was quite a lot of good headspace work even before I finished and it had been a long time coming, the decision, and, you know, and everybody around me was congratulations on what an amazing stint you've had in one place. That's amazing. It's something to to celebrate and this is okay you are okay it's an excellent decision to take this time and I was just so much more anxious and withdrawn into myself 
than I thought I would be. And it coincided with a period of sickness with both the boys were sick and I was sick. And so it felt like the first three months of this time, which was supposed to be the sort of the glory time, you know, we were physically unwell. And then that almost became a oh, an excuse of, well, I haven't kind of hit my stride around this smelling of the roses business because I haven't been able to. And then it also coincided with this, well, even though I'd finished work, I still had our little boy at kinder close to where I used to work. So I, we were having these huge kind of commutes and long time in the car and suddenly felt like the days that I thought I was getting back for myself, the work days, were so contracted into just there were a few hours in between the drop-offs and the pickups. you know, all those logistical things that happen with families and because I was at home, I was the person who did all of those things and it just... I think it just felt almost felt like I was just having the air sucked out of me and the headspace was very negative, not just around myself, but also I started to feel that weight of what happens to professional women and what choices we make and when do we make these choices and what does it look like to be at home and what is valued and what isn't. And it was this huge sea of negative emotions. I, I don't know if I've explained that at all well but it was it was a real struggle and I knew how miserable I was and I felt like I really needed help <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's conf- it's confusing isn't it because if yeah. you're ready to leave work but then on the other side you're miserable as well what do you do my intuition is saying well looking back on that six months the first three months needed to just be restorative yeah and that's tough when you're unwell and yeah. then you probably needed to tack on another three months of restorative, but maybe you felt, did you feel pressured to start figuring out your next move or was it more just that you felt lost? I think it was both, honestly. And I think, I feel like it became increasingly obvious that the uncertainty around what was next started to really drive my behavior, my thinking around this decision and my husband's thinking around this decision. And and I've sort of reflected on this, whether or not if I knew that I could say, yes, I'm taking these six months and in six months I will have a new job and this is what it will look like. I wonder if I could have enjoyed that time more, but because everything was uncertain, everything was up for grabs. And I really felt like I wasn't expecting to take on, I think, think quite as much of my husband's anxiety as I did and that then led to my own anxiety and I really felt like suddenly I was spinning wheels and trying you know had all these job searches going and I was thinking well I'll just need to take something so that we get certainty around that and then I'll figure out how that looks and it was just it was spinning wheels it was and it was so unsustainable and it just fed the negativity as well yeah so that mixture of uncertainty and anxiety really yeah what happened next as I as I said I I withdrew into myself a bit but I think I more withdrew from my husband unfortunately but that's okay we're coming through that but I was talking quite openly with people um I certainly wasn't making any pretense that I was having the time of my life it would have been very obvious to people closest to me that I wasn't and I found you Nikki through a friend of a friend and after our first the little 15 minute are we a good fit together and can we work together conversation I couldn't believe how positive I felt just after that 
And I think it was even before then, I think it was honestly in the typing in my name into a, yes, can I have a phone call with you? And writing out my little story ahead of that to give you a bit of context. That felt like the first bit of control I'd taken for, I guess, six months. And it felt so good. I thought, well, this has to be the path that I need to go on. And yeah, that started us off. Yeah, it's so beautiful to hear. And I was fascinated with your story and I was really looking forward to that first chat as well. My inspiration for inviting Katie onto this podcast today was how we've started together and we're still in the early stages. So we've had two sessions together and I really wanted Katie to share with you kind of the before, during and after of these early sessions because it is really quite fantastic how much inspiration and relief you can get on early in the process. Katie, can you take it away? What would you like to share with us? Yeah, sure. So I think, as I said, I found probably even before we kind of had our formal sessions, I found talking to Nikki an incredible relief initially that a oh my goodness, what what luck is this? I've hit on somebody who I feel like I can immediately open up to and she's, and she's here for me. And I think you gave me really early on this sense of, and I think you said it really early on, which is it's okay that you can't figure this out on your own. It's really hard. And, and I felt like this deep settling in of, I don't know, for whatever reason, that didn't make me feel like a, a failure at all. It made me think, wow, if I can't figure it out, then, you know, this is, this is a real struggle and, and it's okay because I've found somebody to help me. And I guess I felt in you, Nikki, that you, you listened to my confusion and my anxiety and my guilt and my worry and my out and all of that and the relief of having somebody else hold that just for me at that time was huge. I had been, as I said, this spinning wheels are just like spinning completely out of control and finding that quite frightening to be honest. I suddenly thought, okay, I'm stopping these wheels and someone else is holding some of this for me and I am going to be okay. So that started off of the very positive journey. And then I think the first session we had was, I mean, I'm going to call it the dream life exercise. I don't know if that's what you call it, Nikki. But so I, I got on the phone with Nikki and I didn't really know what to expect at the time. And I think that's the point. And something, a revelation that kind of has just struck me recently is that exercise really made me think for the first time, oh my gosh, your dream life can be your work life as well. And they don't have to be distinct. And I guess it was in then working through the, the little mini experiments that came out of that exercise. I was blown away, honestly, by the power of it. And I really think, yep, he's onto a good thing here because it worked, like it really worked. Yeah, so the idea is you, we take these beautiful dreams and then we ground them in some mini experiments and if you've tuned in before you will have heard this before but the whole point of a mini experiment is to connect with an idea in actually a gentle and confidence boosting way so we start off with these micro these tiny mini experiments that are potentially just even one hour long uh, for katie the professional tennis player she's dying to play more tennis and more tennis with her family so the first micro experiment was to book a court the second one was actually to rock up and play on it and I, why don't you take 
take it away and, and share the other mini experiment. And then I'd love to hear the before, during and after because this is where I saw Katie's mood transform. <laughs> so, yeah, over yeah. to you. Sure. I think after this expanse of all of these ideas, I was a bit like, how are we going to move from me being a professional tennis player and are you serious to where do I move from here? And and I guess so it was this breaking it down, looking at the elements and then seeing like, what might this look like in my own life in a manageable kind of small appropriate way. And so I found that very reassuring. And so I booked a tennis court quite local to me that had a beautiful outlook. So I felt like I was satisfying that beauty aspect that I really like and find joy in. And it had come out of this. I'd been playing tennis with my eldest son and and really just loving the experience of hitting with him. And then we all played as a family and it was just, again, as I said, the control I found with just sending an e- the initial email off to Nikki and then following through. I had that same positive sense of just of booking the court, knowing what was coming, talking about it with my family, telling other people about it that I was doing this. And I just really found this ownership in it that was so empowering. And then the other dream life was a florist. And I talked about wanting to be surrounded by flowers and loving having flowers in the house. And I told Nikki, that there was a sort of a floral studio that had opened up around the corner from me, but I hadn't been in. And some of this stuff, I, I didn't even realise I thought until you verbalise these things. Anyway, I went on to the website and saw that they offered little workshops and it was in the lead up to Christmas and I booked myself into a floral wreath making, I think it was an hour and a half making a wreath. And I just could not believe that's what I could do. It was just perfect. I could, you know, the time was right. And I had such a ball. I loved it from start to finish. I, I can't tell you. I mean, you can probably hear in my voice. It was amazing. I found, I totally found my joy in that moment. And then that has lasted all this time. I actually just dismantled the wreath just yesterday, which was absolutely fine. And now I've got this wreath to make every year but just the power of that hour and a half of doing something and it's not even as something as naff as are oh, just doing it for myself like I really it really felt connected to something deep within me that I haven't explored properly or ever and it was really on its face this little thing to do and I just think gosh that really transformed where I was four weeks before it switch things absolutely around for me you can imagine how much i love hearing that and it's so important again to share this because Mm. you know one of my biggest epiphanies in the last year has been you know the more joy and fun we can have the more of a calm state we're in and our life is transformed seriously but when we talk about fun and joy there are phases in our life where we completely forget what that is and having children is a classic phase where we forget, you know, what is this pure fun? What is this pure joy? It is truly thrilling to hear that through this exercise, we uncovered it for you. And that's why it's important to understand that it's potentially not the dream life, potentially it's the elements, Mm. but we explore both in that session. But I just love how you were able to tie in multiple elements into your mini experiments. And they did feel really deep and wonderful. 
Yeah. And then after I did the wreath, and I don't know if it was the time of year, but sudden, suddenly, like I really, as I said, the, the few weeks before then, I couldn't even have imagined feeling good, basically, let alone then turning that around and doing a whole lot of stuff. But out of that, I really got my creative juices going and I was making caramel sauce and I was making mango chutney and I was totally engaged back into a whole lot of activities that I just lost contact with and wasn't just doing them, I don't know, because I felt like I had to make presents for people for Christmas, but I really found that creative connection again and it was just wonderful, like really wonderful. So it was that generative power of not just those two little mini experiments. They really did feel connected. They drove my behaviour. I guess continued to do that because I then, you know, we went on holiday and we booked another tennis court and did that with the family again. So it felt like, oh, my goodness, this is really driving genuine change, not just being a some kind of little antidote, I guess, like flicking a switch. It feels like it's continued into what I've been doing over the last few weeks yeah it's brilliant isn't it it really raises our awareness with many experiments part of the key is permission to start small and have a go and test something out yeah so you've heard a bit about the before during and after and that's really important to apply that when assessing any mini experiment because i find a lot of clients will actually drop an idea I think too early. So if you're wondering what's next for Katie, we'll be setting more mini experiments because if there's been positive emotion, at least during and after, then that's enough evidence for us to continue. What happens is if we give ourselves a longer period of time, that's when we can create magic. And we're exploring a bridge job with Katie as well. But I thought it was important to share that what's next is more mini experiments because we won't actually know until we're further in what Katie really wants to do. And I still feel very much on the journey and I've seen the power. So I feel like, right, definitely this is working. I, I absolutely want to stay on this. But I, I'm so excited about the next phase because, yeah, it really has opened up my mind to, you know, that aha moment of, oh, hang on a minute. Yes, we unbounded everything when we looked at that dream life, but maybe we don't need to bind everything back up into different boxes and to say that your dreams can't be connected to your work or vice versa and I can't wait to explore that through more little mini experiments that are manageable and then leading on into something that will give me some more clarity and insight into I guess where my next place is. Brilliant. So up next we're going to explore Katie's strengths so I just thought I'd get Katie to read them out to all of us and that's what we'll be exploring next. What are they Katie? Sure. So my strengths are number one, empathy, number two, input, number three, individualization, four, relator, and five, ideation. So to describe those, empathy is sensing the feelings of those around you, input is craving to know more, individualization is understanding the unique qualities of others and potentially bringing out the best in them or forming teams. And ideation is seeing the connections between ideas where often other people can't. Relator is a preference for deeper relationships and the yeah. ability to form them. So beautiful strengths. So we'll be exploring those more in depth very soon. Katie, thanks so much for sharing so much of your story today. To wrap up, I'd love you to share a mini experiment challenge today. Sure. So I guess the biggest success I've had is, is that notion of finding the joy and how I guess 
start small. I'd encourage people listening to this is that you can find that joy in really small and simple ways. I don't know how Nikki would categorize that, but it's, I guess, Nikki talks in terms of these little mini experiments. I honestly felt like almost when I walked out of the conversation with Nikki initially and, you know, florist had come up that it was almost enough to go to the local fruit and vegetable shop and literally focus my eyes on a bunch of flowers and think about them. (laughs) You know, that was almost the connection I needed and I found joy just in that. So I guess my challenge is you can find joy really simply and I think I did find that unbounding of that idea quite challenging initially but it is very liberating and very empowering. And I guess something that I thought that I have done for the last few years with my little family and that really resonated just because I'd had such a negative end to this 2017 year was something that I've been encouraging everyone to do now, which is something that I call the good things jar. And we have a little kind of pattern now in my family, which is we have a little jar that says whatever year it is. And on an ad hoc basis, whenever you think about it, just write a little good thing that you've done through the year year, put it in the jar, and then we read them out on New Year's Eve and pull them all out of the jar and have a look. And what that did for me, particularly this year, was it was such a reminder of the joy that was to be found in all the little experiences through that year, even though you can get to the end of a year and you can think that it's really hard and difficult and a struggle and you can't remember any of the good things that happened through that year, being able to pull out the little notes that you'd written in February or March or whenever it was and they're tiny in many cases and they're insignificant in and of themselves perhaps but as you pull them out it's such a reminder of the things that you're grateful for and that you don't need to bind up a whole year and say it was a bad year you can find the joy in all those little bits as you go along that's brilliant i'm going to be implementing that into my family this week i love it (laughs) Good. Yay. So if you're wondering what your joy is, if you're feeling a bit stuck on your dream life or joy, then come over to my website and you can book in for a free chat or sign up to the free monthly webinar to find out your joy or dream life. Katie, thank you so much for today. Thank you, Nikki. I was really nervous, but I've really enjoyed it and love talking to you. Brilliant. So thanks once again, and we'll all speak soon. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for listening. Two things I'd like to mention. Firstly, if you're keen to boost your happiness at work, then head on over to www.nikkismith.net.au, which is n-i-k-k-i-s-m-i-t-h.net.au, and sign up for your starter kit. I share tips in there that are easy to implement and are pure gold. Secondly, if you crave a new work role and have no idea what to do, or lots of ideas but don't know where to start, then head on over and check out the 7-Step Career Change online program. This is an awesome system I use to help people create their dream life best fit role, which is a role that matches their strengths, interests and lifestyle needs. It will move you from feeling fed up, unsure and unconfident to clear, inspired and motivated in six weeks. Plus, if you want to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe and spread the word. Till next time.